Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'd like to read one verse uh, from that chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll be seated after that. Let's uh, pray. Lord, I ask that you would attend to us. Uh, we just sang, open our eyes, um, that we might see, and, and I pray that that would be our heartfelt prayer each and every Lord's Day, and for the elders as well. Pray that, um, that we understand it's all about you and, and, and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 13, verse 14, says this. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let me read that again. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You may be seated. I want you to just stop and think about that sentence we just read. In your mind, I know you think it probably means something, right? What does it mean? For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If you're like me, you're wrong about what you're thinking. I mean, my original impression, if I just take it and see a verse like that out of context, is, is to not respect what was really being written. I start to think that the earth is not my home. That, that heaven's my home or something along those lines. That's not what the verse is getting at. If you read it as a lonely sentence, it sounds like the earth is not important compared to the things of heaven or something that is to come in the future. And it sounds like the word city there could be metaphorical, right? It doesn't mean city, but world. For here we have no lasting city. And that the writer is saying that the world will one day lose its shelf life. This city is not lasting. And it will be replaced by something better. The city that is to come. That's wrong. That's not what this is saying. Hebrews 13, 14 is not referring to the world at all. But like so many verses, if you suck it out of the context of the surrounding paragraphs, then you might think it was. Some have, some have used this verse to say the world is not my home and heaven is. But that's not what it says. What does the writer mean? What's he getting at? Well, I'll guarantee you, 
You're not going to get it by just looking at one sentence. This is our problem. The sentence is first literally referring to a city. For here we have no lasting city. It is literally referring to God's covenantal city of Jerusalem. For here we have no lasting city. He's referring to Jerusalem. And in the latter part of the sentence, the, the writer turns from one covenantal city, Jerusalem, which will not last, to a second city, which had not fully arrived yet when this is written. It was yet to come, this second city. This use of the word city, okay, so in the second part of the sentence, was a bit metaphorical. But its comparison to the first city was direct. The second city was the church or bride of Christ. We're going to see that this is obvious from another passage in Hebrews here. The second city was the church or bride of Christ. It would replace what? It would replace the first city. It would replace Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's place on the shelf of history. For we have no lasting city. This book is written to Hebrew Christians. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. For here we have no lasting city. Jerusalem. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's how that verse is supposed to be understood. You would not understand it that way if taken out of context and the way that much of the church has preached in the last hundred years. The church, furthermore, by implication, is the second city that will last forever. It is a lasting city. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, which is a lasting city. Certainly to understand a sentence, any sentence, I don't care if it's a love letter that you wrote to your girlfriend, You must see how it fits in a paragraph. And to understand a paragraph, you must understand what those paragraphs around it are saying, and so on. Years ago, I did a whole sermon series on Hebrews. And I'll tell you, the gist of this whole book is that the older covenant... The, the shadows with the temple and the sacrifices and the priestly order, the importance of Jerusalem as the center of worship, that these things were being replaced by Jesus Christ and his newly established church. That's the point of this entire book again and again. And this new church that was being established is made up of all the nations. God was discarding or setting aside or taking off the shelf the shadows because Christ was the true substance that had replaced them. 
and was in this book, replacing them. You see, the temple still existed when people read this letter. The sacrifices were still being made. But throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is comparing the older covenant that was passing away to the newer covenant which was arriving and would stay. So he challenges the Hebrew Christians who were beginning, what were they doing? They were beginning to doubt the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah. They were wrestling with thoughts and doubts and wondering if they should go back to their former manner of life and religion under Judaism, which was the religion of who? The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. The author of Hebrews says to them at one point, he warns them, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hebrews 4.1. In Hebrews 10.11-13, this is just giving you uh, the basic thrust of the book. In Hebrews 10.11-13, he makes this comparison between the shadows and Jesus himself. He says of the former, and every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about the older covenant. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You've got to hear this, Hebrews 10, 11 through 13. They stand there doing what they... But Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. I'm not saying this. This is in the text. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's, it's the Apostles' Creed. Jesus offered himself in death, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down at the Father's right hand where he resides while his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. But these thoughts about a city that wouldn't last... And a city yet to come. These thoughts were written at a time when Jesus had been ascended, but the temple was still standing. And Jerusalem was still a a city. Animal sacrifices were still being offered for sins. The priests still served, and the Sanhedrin of elders and teachers still ruled. In fact, they were very... Persecutory, that's probably a bad word. They are very much a threat, a constant threat and punisher of the church. So Hebrews was written to a people in, in transition between covenants. By God's determination, the older covenant was transforming into the new covenant. 
And so in this line in chapter 13, verse 14, for we have no lasting city, for here we have no lasting city. He's talking to Hebrews, Hebrew Christians. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What it means is that Jerusalem and the religion it contained was about to be destroyed. It would not last. Whereas the church of Jesus Christ, the heavenly city, as described in a second in Hebrews 12, it would survive the judgment of Jerusalem. I know it's, I'm belaboring a point here again. But you have to understand what people do with a simple sentence taken out of context. And it changes everything. This is what it says in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22. This is what it says to Hebrew Christians who left the old and the temple and the sacrifices because of what Jesus did. The author writes, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made righteous, uh, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Again, don't go back. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. Too often, verses like today's get quoted out of context. This verse isn't referring to the world being put on a shelf, going away, but we seek a heavenly kingdom. It's not referring to that. It refers to the covenant city of Jerusalem. And these verses are misapplied if applied entirely to you and me. For today, we're not Hebrew Christians debating. We're not. Whether to leave Christ and and return to the older covenant structure, we're not debating that. That's not even an option, is it? Not really. There's no temple that stands. Every stone was torn down. But for them, in in this day, it still stood. Also for us today, the one city has already been replaced by the other. And we are participants, you and me, right now in this second city. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. This is why I bring this up. Very often people take something out of context, something meant for someone else in their time, and use it like it's meant for us today. Very often. It's the problem I pointed out last time about the Olivet Discourse. In it, Jesus Jesus talked about horrible things that were going to happen in the future of his listeners. 
False prophets would arise, earthquakes and wars would persist. It would be a time of great tribulation. Jerusalem would be surrounded by her enemies. The city would be attacked and the temple would be torn down. Not one stone would be left upon another. That's not for us. I mentioned then, last time, for the past hundred years, popular Christianity has pushed those negative signs out of head, out ahead for us to our future and talked about the end of the world. This is what this means. It's the end of the world. All the while, Jesus said those things would come upon Jerusalem and during the lifetimes of the generation to whom he spoke. This generation shall not pass away till all these things take place. Radio and TV preachers and many pastors have misinterpreted Jesus' words and misled many. And unfortunately, and here's the kicker to me, it has produced in Christians an unwillingness to labor, to transform the world for Christ because they see it as a futile effort, a waste of time. Why put so much effort into making things better when it's really going to go down the toilet anyhow? There are other verses as well, snatched from their context. As you might expect, okay, Those who have this idea of pessimism for the future, those who have a pessimistic eschatology, they find negative-sounding verses. And and I'm not saying they're dishonest in their approach necessarily. I think they're confused, but they spot verses that make sense to them. Negative-sounding verses. They make sense to them because things are going to get negative. We are pilgrims, sojourners. The earth is not our home. One, one example. I shouldn't. Sorry. I get so frustrated after so many years and, and the, the dullness and the inactivity and the lazy selfishness of Christians when it comes to these things. They live a very comfortable life, but they do nothing because it's all going down the toilet in their mind. So they don't really try to affect great change. They go to work, take care of their families, try to be right with God. Take, for instance, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Now, this is, a, this is a, a different little context, but it's still the same letter. Hebrews eleven thirteen, which is that chapter of the great heroes of the faith. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hmm. What do you do with something like that? We're led to believe that a good Christian is one who waits for something he doesn't get to have. Right? That's what the heroes did. They never received these promises. They, they wait for them, waited for them from afar, it says. And they were faithful. Some were sawn in two. That's pretty faithful. 
God promises him something sweet, and he lives for God, knowing that someday, maybe after death, he will get the thing. And so we're told Hebrews 11 is a chapter of heroes of the faith. We think we should be like them, right? Well, in one sense, we should. We should be so faithfully committed to God that no matter what happens in our daily life, we're for him. But waiting and not getting, that goes along with this idea that things go down the toilet. Waiting for something that, that we can't have until the appointed time. A people out of place in the world, the church, a people out of place in the world. Strangers, exiles, those were the words used here. And those men of faith were, and women of faith were, strangers and exiles by their experience. But I ask you, do you know how the Hebrews chapter 11 ends? Take a look at that for a minute in verses 39 and 40. It says of those historically faithful people that all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hmm. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So I think the point of Hebrews 11, if we're reading this whole book in context, Christian, is that we are in a better position than the heroes were because of what God the Son accomplished on behalf of all of his people through history. And here we get to have it. We're, we're in the front row. We get to take the first steps. Think of it this way. Just because your great-grandma sacrificed and struggled through the Great Depression, and you thank her for that, it doesn't mean you must still eat milk-soaked toast for your only meal once a day. Unfortunately, though, these misapplications of pessimistic-sounding passages are applied to congregants in church pews or cushy interconnected chairs in a multi-purpose room. And these people, we leave worship with negative expectations of the future embedded in our thinking. Doesn't matter. So picture it. They're leaving these churches, driving home in their modern cars to their heated homes. They eat Sunday brunch with family, take a nap. I can picture Satan in the back seat as they're driving home, holding his belly to keep from laughing out loud at how much this blessed family has been rendered ineffective for Christ's kingdom by false views of their work and of the future. 
yet they hear these teachings week after week, or they listen to them daily on the radio. You start to think dire thoughts about what is to come. Don't you? You do not have a vision for victory, but only of inevitable defeat. And so Christians anticipate ruin and futility. I guess Satan wins until Jesus comes back to get the ones he saved. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hey, where's the TV remote? We started attending a Lutheran church when we first moved up north to New Auburn back in 1998. We lived up there for four and a half years or so before we came to live in Alto. And it was frustrating for me to go to that church, and I'm going to tell you why. I like the people, I like the pastor, and on top of it, my mom and dad attended there. So that was kind of neat to kind of worship with, with them. My frustration was that I wanted us as a church, right, to do local and and, and public teaching of the community in whatever form or fashion we could do that, not just in church. I wanted to hand out literature, to teach on topics. I wanted the church to publicly stand against abortion and some of the other ills of society. But my pastor then did not want to do that. He talked it down. He said to me, what happens? We start doing that kind of stuff, and I go into the post office and run into people who don't like what we've done. That was a serious question he was asking. That was his word, well, not word for word, but... At one point, he, he did bring up some of my ideas to the church council. I asked him to. But they decided to kind of discard them because I was not an official member of the church. I understand that. I think we would be reluctant to have someone come in here who doesn't join the church but has all these wonderful ideas of the things the church should do. Okay, I get that. I don't blame them for for some of that. I couldn't really officially join the church. In my mind, that was part of my problem. I couldn't agree with some of the Lutheran differences from my Reformed theology, my Reformed beliefs. So I, I always kind of hesitated to join churches if I couldn't like really sign my name to the statement of faith. But why did my pastor oppose the suggestions to be more public about Christ's commands. We're supposed to teach the nations. Why why did he oppose those things? First, I think, and this might hit home, the idea of conflict frightened him. It frightened him. The idea of conflict. Conflict frightens many Christians. We don't like it. We'd rather avoid it. Who wants, to, who wants to be the first one to run into the uh, enemy lines, raising your hand, or step forward, everyone kind of goes. So I think that was the first 
one of the issues. But secondly, he had convinced himself that the church had no hope of changing the world. The world was destined to degrade and perish. Not until Jesus came back to the earth at the second coming, he thought, would we be able to expect the world to change for good. And so he preached what he knew. It was frustrating. He preached on the end times, and he claimed to be an expert on that subject. Uh, I'll tell you what. Anybody who's big into talking about signs of the times, that's the one thing that they study in their Bibles or try or say they study. They think they're studying. But he claimed to be a student on the, of that subject, and he also he preached to save souls in the congregation, kind of that four spiritual laws gospel message. So every week it was either the one or the other. End times or repent and believe the gospel message and be saved. At one point, he began to work through the book of Revelation. And that sucked the breath out of me. It was somewhere in that that I felt like I really can't affect the change here because I'm not a full member. And this is killing me, listening to some of this stuff, that we ended up moving on to a different church. I recently heard about a book, though. I'm Not though. This just changed my thinking. It's really been good. I recently heard about a book written by a deceased, I think he's deceased, Dutch theologian who is living down, I think, in South Africa. His name is Cornelis van der Waal. I bought it immediately, and I've almost read through it. Tracy asked me as I'm sitting in the chair, you must really like that book. Is that book important to your sermon prep? I said, well... Uh, Yes, because I really think this guy is on to something. (laughs) The book is called The World, Our Home, and then followed by Christians Between Creation and Recreation is the subtitle. And, And Vanderwall wrote the book to correct many of these false uses of Scripture, these negative, pessimistic uses of Scripture and how they are imposed upon us as if they were for us. These Scripture passages or verses that kind of paint the picture that the Lord has called us to be pale pilgrims. Sojourners without a home, aliens in the earth, biding our time in the desert of fallen humanity, all while we try to remain holy inside of ourselves. The the book is wonderfully insightful. Highly encourage you to buy it. The World Our Home by Cornelis Vanderwall. Vanderwall believes that there was a time in the history of the church, and many others believe this too, it was just news to me at one point, that the school of pietism, pietism, 
has co-opted biblical language and misused it to present the world and culture as off-limits to any substantial Christian influence. In other words, pietists, they take the terms like sojourner and pilgrim, alien, and so forth to position the world against the Christians and remove the Christians' obligation to change the world. No, 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 you're a pilgrim here. You're passing through. You are a sojourner in the earth, an alien. This is not your home. You get the idea. The pietist believes his concern is his personal relationship with God. His personal relationship with God. His walk with the Lord. His holiness in a fallen world. By itself. That can be and should be a very good thing. We wouldn't disagree with it. However, the pietist would go on and say, it is not the Christian's concern to change the world and make it better. I confess, until about 15 years ago, I didn't know pietism was actually a movement or a school of thought that was invented in church history. Maybe you've never heard of it before. Matt Tuella actually had written an article or was saying something to me in the conversation about pietism. And I had to almost tap the brakes and say, wait, 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 wait. It was actually something newly introduced and taught? Like it didn't used to be taught? And then there came a time when someone said, well, I think this. I think we should see things this way. He said, yeah. And it was, according to... Multiple authors. Uh, Ron Kronz, in his book, The Beast, the Whore, and the Forgotten Vision, another one you should buy. Wow. He said pietism can get tied back to a man named Simon Solzer. Simon Solzer. I don't know who that was. Solzer was alive, okay, in the time period from 15... In the 1500s, 1508 to 1585. He was a reformed Swiss theologian. That's a lot going for you. And one of Salzer's primary aims was to unite the churches of the Helvetic and Wittenberg confessions. Okay, and what that means is he wanted to bring together the reformed churches and the Lutheran churches. That's a noble goal. The attempt at unity would mean, of course, that the two sides would have to give up some deeply held scriptural ideologies. And this is where the problem comes in. Kranz contends that Solzer introduced compromise as an important thing for the sake of unity while living in the world. It would become an important ingredient for pietism. So that was Solzer. Then it came along a man in the between lived between 1551 and 1621 by the name of Johann Arndt. Arndt was a German Lutheran theologian, and he added kind of to this redirection uh, uh, of the church, of a Christian's purpose. And Arndt turned his attention to things that were more devotional more mystical, more inside of you. 
aren't, as a teacher, he was open to extra-biblical prophecy, and there were many false prophecies associated with him. Arndt was inclined toward art. Arndt was inclined toward subjective experiences over objective doctrine. And so if you hear someone talking a lot like, I'm waiting for the Lord to lead me, or the Lord led me to do such and such, this is the kind of thing we're talking about with Arndt. Be very careful with that kind of language. So with Sulcer, we have the idea of compromising lesser things for the sake of unity. With Arndt, we have an emphasis on the soul with God. What a person feels God wants versus what the word of God actually says. Finally, those two men influenced the climate of the cultures, uh, sorry, the climate of the churches that eventually produced the father of pietism. His name was Philip Jacob Spenner. I don't know if I said his last name correctly. He lived from 1635 to 1705, and according to Ron Kranz, Spenner had formally been accused of 264 errors by the faculty of Wittenberg, the Lutheran faculty. Kranz writes this, and listen to this. Spenner advocated for personal purity, devotion to reading of the Bible, and heartfelt obedience to God. This, of course, is commendable. Yet Spenner also emphasized personal transformation and and conversion to the exclusion of matters beyond the edification of the believer. He discouraged talking about things that might be offensive or viewed as divisive. For Spenner, the gospel was limited chiefly to matters of personal salvation and to individual progress in that faith. In other words, uh, Spenner supported a me and Jesus religion. Just me and Jesus. The, The person and his relationship with God was of primary importance, which I think it is. But the things of earth would be sacrificed for this nobler cause, which is absolutely anti Christian. I know this is getting dry. Let me just keep going. Kron says you can sift pietism down to three general principles. Listen to these principles. Unity over and above division and controversy. Our church denomination is big on that. Subjective experience over objective truth. And three, conversion and edification to the exclusion of external matters of the faith. I find that pietism is the natural byproduct for the Christian who holds no hope for the future of mankind in history. If there's no hope for the future, then it's just about you and God, baby.
I think a person's eschatology drives many of their theological views and the views he decides to adopt. As God's image-bearing creatures, we are made to try to put things together, to figure things out in a way that's consistent. That's good. It's proper to try and make sense of truth. And so if things are going down the toilet in our minds because we believe Scripture teaches that, pietists, a pietist believes he can still put things together. It's just not going to go too far beyond the boundaries of his own soul. And that's how they attempt to put it together. I printed out ten copies of uh, an article Matt Tuella wrote called A Brief History of Pietism and statist rulers. Why rulers promote a pietistic form of Christianity. And I'm going to read briefly from it, but if you want, I've made ten copies, as I said. This is what Matt had written. Pietism was a movement which originated in the late 17th century. Pietists believe Christianity, or God's law, has no place for the governance of society. They view involvement in public policy matters to be unspiritual. They believe Christianity should, only, should be only a private and personal matter. Pietism was developed amongst the Lutherans, impacted the Calvinists, and became prevalent among the Baptists. Pietism went on to infect every area of Christianity. Present-day American Christianity is pietism. So how did pietism gain such a place of prominence throughout not only America, but all of Western civilization? Philip Spenner and Auguste Franke of Germany were the founders of the pietist movement. Their teachings emphasized Christians being separate from the world, focused, uh, focused Christians on the inward and personal, and exhorted for the lessening of pastoral involvement in the, debate, in the debates over public policy. Their followers took things way beyond what they originally taught. This new form of Christian religion quickly caught the eye of kings and rulers. Various kings and rulers immediately put pietists in positions of influence, particularly in teaching positions in the universities. They also financed and promoted this new religion through their empires. Frederick King of Prussia, for example, installed pietist teachers and financed its propagation. Unfortunately, pietism even influenced the Prussian form of education he developed, which went on to impact all of Western civilization. Why would the kings and rulers have an interest in a form of Christianity which promoted the idea that one's Christian faith should be a purely private and personal matter? Because a private Christianity is a more controllable Christianity. Reduce people's Christianity to the realm of the personal and they will not stick their noses in the public. Hence, the kings and rulers were politically motivated to push this form of Christianity. Through it, they could further remove the influence of Christianity from the public square. Sadly, most of all, Christianity and Christians, both then and now, have embraced pietistic thinking. So thoroughly have the statists routed Christian thought that most Christians now view the idea that Christ and his kingdom should impact the nations of the earth as a completely foreign idea or worse, heretical.
end quote. Again, I believe pietism to be an outgrowth of bad eschatology. People who tend to think the world is going downhill, they withdraw into themselves. This is going to get really close soon. I'm, I'm almost done, but these last things, you really got to hear this. People who tend to think the world is going downhill, they withdraw into themselves. They don't work to change the world, for that is futile to them. Instead, they work to change the only thing they can, themselves. But here's the rub. When all the things you might do, when all the things you might do and could expend yourself for in the earth is regulated to fail, then you only begin to look inward rather than outward. Pietism. The only problem is that self, sorry, one problem is self-obsession. Self-obsession becomes the Christian plague. Self-obsession becomes the Christian plague. You are so inward-directed that you find hard to get out of your own head. A song I heard uh, when we went to a movie the other night, Sing Too. It was a YouTube YouTube song. And and the phrase is, um, you're stuck in the moment and you can't get out of it. And I don't know the full context of the song. I looked up the lyrics, but I think a lot of Christians, they kind of get just stuck, depressed. They ain't going anywhere. They don't have anything to really do. It's not task-oriented. It's them-oriented. You're so inward-directed that you find it hard to get out of your own head. And add to that, okay? So if you're supposed to be so inward-directed, as pietism would teach. You add to that your deceptive heart. And pretty soon, you're thinking about yourself and indulging yourself in all of those selfish things of the flesh, too. Bitterness, laziness, sins of sensuality, loathing. That's you on the inside. If you're you're always on the inside, never thinking about what's beyond you, Look out. All sins begin in the heart. And much of that is caused and fostered by this pessimistic view of the future in which success is capped. Don't bother. Just look in. You're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness then, are you? You're all caught up in self. Van der Waals suggests that that we have made the person all important rather than his task, and it's killing us. Truly, the person who sees destruction for a future is rarely motivated to invest his every molecule to build for tomorrow. But the scripture does not support the idea that the world is headed for calamity in ruin It is just the opposite. The city that was to come has come, and you have come to it, according to Hebrews 12, 22. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I really hope the church in our era turns away 
from the last hundred years of eschatological doom. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you uh, would work in us as people, um, even for those who discard, discard my understanding of how things are meant to play out in the future. Might they be motivated somehow to invest their lives now to change the world around them by bringing your word, your teaching to the nations. In your name we pray, Lord.